I'm Adit Chakraborty and welcome back to the business after our New Year break. This week, Britain's high street giants report their best Christmas sales for years. Confidence may have returned, but is there a downside to our rampant spending? Plus, crisis, what crisis? We discuss the state of Britain's gas supplies and we go downtown in Motown and check on the health of the US car industry. This is The Business from The Guardian. We're back and we've rolled out the big guns for our first show of 2010 and they've responded with a splendid array of Christmas knitwear. Here in the pod is our business editor, Deborah Hargreaves, and Tim Webb, industrial editor for both The Guardian and The Observer. We'll come on to gas and cars a little later, but we'll start with shopping. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Neither snow, nor ice, nor indeed the chilly winds of the recession could keep us from splashing the cash over the last festive period. MS, Asda, John Lewis, Blacks, Next, Sainsbury's, Poundland, all of them reported strong increases in their like-for-like sales for December and early January. And Britain's biggest retailer, Tesco, this week reported its strongest Christmas sales for three years. So, Deborah, is it all sweetness and light on High Street? Well, it's, um, you've got to remember that we're coming off a very low base. It was in 2008, we had an appalling Christmas for most of the retailers, and now they are improving. And I think we all got fed up with recession. We wanted to go out, have a bit of retail therapy. There was a bit of snow before Christmas, but that didn't stop people getting into the shops. And then, of course, we all splashed out in the sales. My major sales splash out is bed linen. That's my major addiction. It's so I exciting. like to buy bed linen. Yeah, I'm just obsessed with well. it. Two coats. If I can just yeah. put that on and, and they're rather fetching purple jumper. Well, that's, that's not new, but uh, no, thanks. He's, he's been rocking that for a while. What, what, what were the coats? Tell us about that. Uh, well, they were coats as a coat you know you wear coats one was a, a smart coat for work and one was a kind of duvet type you know zip up duck filled you know uh Hiking um, jacket. So, <laughs> th- th- listen, this, these are dispatches from Feel Good Britain. In is it that is, what you're saying, Deborah? It is Feel Good Britain, but not for much longer. Go I on. think the purchases have been brought forward. Obviously, everyone knew that VAT would go back on the first of January, and so they've all um, been spending before that. And I think you know, there's a bit of belt tightening going on now. We're still a bit worried about losing our jobs. I think one of the interesting things that's come out of the um, reporting season for me, though, is the extent of Waitrose bounce back. Waitrose sales were up 13%, and all this traditional food, we're getting back to buying quality food again. You know, Waitrose has done really well. Marks and Spencer's not so well, but I mean, Waitrose and John Lewis is an incredible turnaround. And as if by the magic of podcasting, head of business, Dan Roberts joins us. Dan, what did you buy in the sales? I haven't bought anything, actually. I think I slightly overindulged at Christmas, and we're having a rather frugal January. Um, do you think? Do you think like that's so me- many of us? <laughs> do you think that's a? Do you think that's something that more people across Britain will be seeing? Do you think that the, these kind of big Christmas sales mean that uh, actually the rest of the year is going to be pretty disappointing for retailers? I think um, the idea of January sales is, is completely sort of eroded. I mean, um, I, I lie. We did actually go online on Boxing Day to buy some sheets or something or towels or something really boring because John Lewis is sad suddenly sad doing. But, but the point being that uh, the online the the sales start you know. Know, on Christmas Eve, really now, um, and and it's all a bit of a game. And I don't. Th- I think the days when people sort of really kind of saved up all their money to January first, then they all rushed out and they bought their sofa or something. I just think they've all gone. Well, he's bought I, two coats. Well, obviously, I'm I'm way behind the trend, and really, in g- general terms about <laughs> retail, I genuinely editor. am behind the trend. So should we, should we try? I'm an, an, should we try have some facts in this discussion? Tim? <laughs> At the same time as we all went out and spent a load of money, donation stocks are down some 15%. So what do you think is going on there? Is it that we're getting more selfish? 
Uh, well, I think there's no doubt we're probably becoming more increasingly materialistic consumerist society. But then again, how do you measure that? But that's, uh, you know, my knee jerk response to that question. Um, I guess uh, things like direct debits are quite easy, which a lot of people use to, to donate to charities would, would easy to cancel. And maybe people think I really need a warm coat and it's 50 percent off. So I need it more than the starving children of Africa. Um, not that I'm talking about myself here, but um, <laughs> and at the same time as people went and splashed out on the plastic, we've also been reading that millions of people are now paying their mortgages off on their plastic. Dan, what do you what do you make of that? Are we going back? I mean, the question is, are we just going back to the old ways of two thousand four, five, six, where we just borrowed like crazy? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I wrote about this a couple of days ago. I think that the um, uh, the Christmas sales surge, while clearly good for the economy, is really worrying from a sustainability question. Not just the environmental sustainability, but more importantly, I think, well, less equally importantly economically it's unsustainable because basically incomes were stagnant last year the savings ratio didn't flip people normally in a recession people start saving more and actually that hasn't happened much building societies for example reported they were seeing net outflows of deposits now some of that's going to the subsidized national banks but but broadly speaking people are not actually being terribly frugal at a time when you think they would be uh, it's helping us get us out of recession for now but it, surely it's just storing up another consumer driven bubble but isn't this low in- down to low interest rates yeah. people have got mortgages they've got a lot more money but as you say that rather than paying off their debt or boosting savings which are to an extent they're also splashing the cash. but deborah have you seen a big kind of cultural shift going on i mean these sales figures don't seem to indicate that no i don't think i mean i think in the in the depth of, re- of the recession we're all talking about a new style economy and getting onto a new basis but but there's no there's very little sign of that happening and we really ought to think of other ways of measuring economic growth as dan says you know it's unsustainable for the environment uh, interestingly we could see interest rates go up later this year and that could well put a cap on spending um, we've got an interview with andrew sentence from the mpc um, and where he says he thinks the stimulus has been enough not that it should be withdrawn but that there is won't no be more needed mm. yeah Okay, thank you all. You can read more analysis on all of this at guardian.co.uk slash business, including a rather natty interactive too. More details on our blog. On now to the gas industry. We've all seen the headlines during the recent Arctic snap about the perilous state of Britain's gas supplies. The National Grid's issued four alerts in last month, the latest after the bad weather prevented the arrival of some much-needed imported gas from Norway. Tim, what's going on? Is there a crisis? Well, some people are certainly saying there's, there's a crisis, although it's certainly one that predates the, the current cold snap and the problems we've been having with gas imports. Uh, clearly, with a very cold weather, there's, there's a high demand for gas. And that, as the UK becomes increasingly dependent on imports, as the North Sea reserves dwindle, then that leaves us more exposed to any uh, supply interruptions that we've seen, one you've just mentioned, with, with, with the Norwegian uh, gas field. So um, this whole issue of energy security supply is being brought uh, into focus and the events of last week has certainly really underlined how fragile in some respects our um, kind of contingency plans are if there are supply disruptions, if the market, the gas market of uh, uh, where you export the gas to wherever prices are high from mm. Europe uh, and Norway etc to the UK, if that doesn't work uh, then our gas storage facilities, for example, um, our safety margin, if you like, not really, uh, certainly not large enough. So are we worse off than the rest of Europe? Well, in some ways. I mean, if you lived in Eastern Europe and you relied on Gazprom every year for gas, then you, you might 
disagree, although there hasn't been any problems uh, this year. The gas has flowed, and that's partly because the recession at demand for gas is lower, and, and, and Russia actually has too much gas. So, What about France, for instance? Well, France, um, they rely on nuclear power. So 80% of the electricity comes from nuclear power. What's worrying in the UK is that um, I think about 30% of our electricity is generated using gas um, power plants. But as coal plants close, the old nuclear plants close, we'll be building more and more gas plants, which obviously need gas to, to work. So we'll be having to import even more gas. So again, and that means being more reliant on imports of gas from unreliable places like Russia and uh, the Middle East. So places like France as well, Germany, they, uh, they clearly haven't had access to the North Sea and that we have had, which we've kind of used as our big storage facility if you like so they've had years and time to put in place which they have done build their own gas facilities which are much larger and they're also uh, their energy markets are less market driven so there are more more heavily regulated companies aren't allowed to f- um, empty the gas storage facilities in in france for example they have to keep them about 80 percent full uh, at winter time whereas in this country we're seated the pants are we yes we we not only do we have um relatively small gas storage facilities but uh companies are allowed to um not empty them but allow to um deplete the stocks um to a kind of very low level um national grid and the government will say there are plenty plenty of measures in place to prevent you know the lights going out and in some respects they're true uh, you know they're correct in saying that but all of this re- um, re- um, is predicated on the expectation that as i was saying the, the market functions mm-hmm. properly and mm-hmm. worst case scenario um you know i think we are um you know we we do need more of a cushion don't we have um, – doesn't France have something like 70 days storage and Germany has 90 days storage and we only have 16? Yes, it's right? about that, yeah. Um, yes. Flexible British gas market. I mean, Deborah, there is quite a big political angle to this because every time one of these big alerts comes out from, North, from National Grid, the Conservatives immediately fire out a press release saying, see, the government's now running down our gas supplies. We can't go on like this. Yeah, I, Greg Clark says this every time. Um, there's a, there's a, an alert, which we obviously we've had several of them. And um, – You've got to look back at privatisation, really. And who was it who privatised the energy industry? I don't think it was Labour. And uh, um, that dates all the way back because we've we've got a completely liberalised energy market in the UK. There is no real interest in a, in a private sector energy supplier providing huge amounts of storage because it's in their interest if the price goes up and um, they can charge customers a higher price so it's got to be a strategic decision it's got to be a government-led decision that that builds on these um, major energy um, uh, strategy for the country and, and we really haven't seen much strategic thinking from any government Dan, the people in Whitehall would say, actually, it's not them that's messing up the, the gas market. It's the people in Europe by distorting the market so much, by storing up supplies for longer. If the rest of the market players were as flexible as Britain was, they say, that means we'd all get gas going to where it was most needed at whatever price was most suitable. Uh, that's definitely been the argument. I mean, it, it's eerily familiar um, to lots of parts of British industry um, and British finance over the last decade. I mean, we had a slightly naive Panglossian worldview um, some of it I still think is, 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 is warranted. But when it comes to energy security, I think w- w- we're in danger of looking silly. The rest of the world doesn't think like this. I mean, 
mean, I've just come back from, from Moscow where I was doing an interview with Gazprom about the way they see um, energy security. And, I mean, they clearly see, the Russians clearly see gas and oil as a huge strategic advantage. They are interested in price and money and all the market sig- signals, but they, they know there's more to it than that. And I think we're in danger of looking stupid if we just think that, well, as long as we keep our taps open, the, the gas will come because they, you know, they play by the rules, don't they? This is The Business from The Guardian. From gas to gas guzzlers. Well, sort of. The Detroit Motor Show is currently taking place in a city that was once the heartland of America's once mighty automotive industry. Last year, the Obama administration bailed out the likes of General Motors and Chrysler to the tune of $80 billion. But this year's event is being seen as a symbol of rebirth for the beleaguered car makers. Our Wall Street correspondent Andrew Clark is in Detroit. We can speak to him now. Andrew, just give us some... What do you notice this year compared to last or previous, previous motor shows? Well, a few more signs of hope this year than last year. I think there's very much a focus on uh, recovery rather than survival now. Um, General Motors and Chrysler both went through bankruptcy briefly last year, but they survived. Um, And now, uh, really, the mood is very much about how can we just begin to climb back towards uh, uh, the levels at which the industry was operating on uh, a few years ago. Chrysler has said this week that it's just going to begin to start recruiting uh, workers after laying off tens of thousands over the last few years. And uh, since, uh, since the autumn, we've seen a, a steady, uh, slow but steady increase in auto sales in the U.S., and that's without any further cash for clunkers subsidies from the U.S. government. So things are just beginning to look a bit better. And one big difference is this year the unions aren't disgruntled workers, but they're also shareholders too. Well, indeed, uh, the United Auto Workers uh, Union owns a stake both in General Motors and in Chrysler, or to be more precise, their pension fund owns a stake in both Chrysler uh, and in General Motors. So so they're inside the room. Last year, we had um, disgruntled union activists protesting in the snow outside the Detroit Motor Show, and this year it's quite quite curious to see that the people protesting out there are conservatives who opposed the Obama administration's bailout of the auto industry. They're so-called Tea Party activists who don't like Barack Obama. In fact, one of them's got a picture of him out there with a a Nazi moustache on his face. So so these are people who feel very strongly that um, socialism is creeping its way into America. And uh, these very reasonable Tea Party, Detroit Tea Party faction, how big are they and how vocal are they? Well, here at the Detroit Motor Show, they're not very big. I mean, there's, there's uh, at peak, there were a couple of dozen of them. Um, but, but they are a force to be reckoned with across the U.S. And perhaps if the temperature wasn't um, about minus five degrees and it wasn't snowing here, then, then uh, there might have been a few more who'd turned up. It's quite notable, though, that the Michigan branch of the uh, Tea Party uh, movement decided not to participate because they... Uh, they have more of a recognition of the importance of motor manufacturing jobs to the broader economy um, than those who came from other states. And away game in tough conditions. Finally, let me just ask you, um, there are comments in the New York Times today about bankers' bonuses and what the White House plan to do about them. Can you tell us a bit more? 
Well, indeed. I mean, President Obama's getting increasingly concerned um, about the likely public reaction when big Wall Street banks begin to announce their year-end profits and begin to hand out or, or begin to give us the numbers of bonuses that they're handing out to employees. That's going to start happening on Friday with JP Morgan. And then next week, we'll get the really big beast, Goldman Sachs, that will tell us how much each of its, uh, well, how much in total its employees are going to receive. And that could be an average figure of 500 to 700 thousand um, uh, dollars. Obama is, is both um, concerned about uh, recouping the government's bailout funds to banks and he is also concerned about quelling uh, public anxiety over uh, excessive amounts going to a small number of people. So he, he's looking at the possibility of a tax of some sort or a levy of some sort on banks. Um, he's decided not to go down the UK route, which is to simply impose a 50% tax on bankers' bonuses. And he also seems to have turned against another idea, which is a, uh, a levy on financial transactions. Instead, it seems that the thinking in, in the White House is very much towards uh, some sort of direct levy on banks themselves. Andrew, busy couple of weeks lie ahead for you. Thank you very much for your time. Dan, just going back to the Andrew's uh, comparison there between where White House stands and, and Whitehall stands, is, is it a case of Washington now catching up with London or do you see something else going on? I think so. I mean, I think they're grappling with the same issue, which is that they, they've got an awful conundrum. On the one hand, they know that politically um, there's very little tolerance for return to bonuses. Um, they also know they've got to restore the banks to health and they've also got to carry on sort of um, encouraging the banks to lend to businesses to get the economy going. And they also know that there is a, there is a worry that if they don't act in unison with the rest of the world, then um, uh, there's a danger that, uh, I think overstated danger, but there is a danger that um, lucrative financial services businesses will migrate uh, uh, overseas. All of these things have been swirling all year and you kind of do get the sense that actually Brown and Darling have sort of started to grasp them and grapple with them a little earlier than than the White House has. They're coming to slightly different conclusions. I mean, you you know, in the US, they're they're talking about windfall tax. In the UK, we've got a tax on uh, a direct tax on on bonuses rather than profits. And we've also been talking about transaction tax. Now, these all sound like splitting hairs, but they are quite philosophically different directions. What do you see as being the philosophical difference? Well, I think that um, in this sense, I think the White House is onto something in that I think that you better, it's better to attack bonuses at the root cause and the root cause is that banking is too profitable it's too easy to gouge money and it's got a huge government subsidy and it's got a huge government subsidy so i think tackling those profits at source is actually both philosophically more sensible and also practically easier to do than trying to stamp out an entire culture exactly you start you start clamping down on on a bit of income here it's like squeezing a toothpaste tube it squeezes out somewhere else why better to tackle it at source and sort of go for the fact that banks do make far far huge amounts of money at the the cost of the rest of the economy We'll have much, much more on bankers and bonuses on next week's show. But for now, time to draw proceedings to a close. My thanks to Dan Roberts, Deborah Hargreaves and Tim Webb. This programme was produced by Ben Green. I'm Edith Chakraborty and that was the business. 